Welcome everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sara. I'm a partner at NUA Capital. I'm excited to be here today um, and host the conversation. Uh, I'd like to thank the members of the audience who are joining us and uh, our panelists for being part of this conversation. I'll hand it over to Amjad first to introduce himself. Hi everybody, thanks Sarah and hello Patrick. Uh, very excited to be on this uh, uh, discussion. Uh, obviously it's a very relevant discussion for today. Uh, I think many of you know uh, my background, but uh, effectively I've been investing in technology for the last five years. Uh, and uh, it's been such an exciting time lately because uh, the business models have worked and uh, it's an exciting time to be in the space. So looking forward to this discussion. Great, Patrick. Thanks, Sarah. Echo, echo Amjad's statement about being excited to, to be on this panel. I've been a, a, a venture capital lawyer for a number of years. About a year and a half ago, uh, we started Clara, which is looking to digitize and, and automate startup legal expertise and, and provide a platform for founders to do a lot more of the legal stuff they need to do on their own. Um, we also work closely with founders as part of that to help them raise VC. So we're, uh, we're very close to this subject matter and excited to share some ideas today. Great, welcome both of you. Um, so we're here today because we wanted to have a discussion on tech company valuations in the region. So clearly there's been a lot of activity in the tech space specifically. So we're seeing movement of capital and um, a lot of rounds being closed frequently. So on one side, there is a global economic slowdown um, that we're seeing. So there's a, a great number of layoffs and a record number of bankruptcies, unfortunately. But on the other side, there's a large, a large adoption of digital. So even though we did expect a slower rate of uh, deployment and a contraction of capital at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we did see, um, as per the Magnet report, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there has been a 35% increase in funding in the region. Uh, $650 million was, was deployed in the first half of the year alone. So what's, what's happening? There's obviously an interest in, to invest in the asset class. So I just wanted to kind of dig deeper into that and discuss it with you. Um, so Amjad, you sit on boards and you are, um, have experience in both the U.S. And, the re and in the region. Do you see that the pandemic triggered a, a rush to grab venture assets? Uh, so certainly, I think what we've seen, and this is not unique to the region, yeah. I think what you've seen is an acceleration of existing trends. I don't, I don't see new trends. I see an acceleration. So, uh, uh, you know, if you look at adoption rates that we were expecting over the course of the next five to 10 years, yeah. they've effectively happened within a year. And I think that will continue. I think what you're seeing is an awakening of what technology can do to our lives as consumers, to businesses. Uh, so this will only continue. Um, yeah. I don't know if any of you have been watching tech valuations on the stock market, which are a great indicator, but they're going through the roof. And I wanna highlight one interesting point because it leads into our discussion of valuation, yeah. which is people were valuing technology companies fairly uh, uh, significantly when markets were booming which made sense. But these companies have reacted so well in a down market from a business perspective 
that now they're being valued even higher because they also have downside protection. So from a valuation perspective, as many of you know, you know, how do you value a company that reacts extremely well in a boom and extremely well in a bust? Yeah. That's, that's very unique. And I think what we see today- company. Yeah. Counter-cyclical, but also they do well on the upside, which, which, yeah, yeah, exactly. which is a very interesting dynamic. So, so I think what you're seeing is a resetting of the tech multiple as well. I think people are willing to pay a higher multiple today because I think the old school thinking was that during a bust cycle, technology companies would actually go down. And that's not what's been happening. They've been performing extremely well. And I think you're seeing that play out in the region. Most of the companies that I'm involved in have seen an uptick in this period. And I think many people think it's all about growth, but it's not just about growth. It's also about profitability, which obviously helps the valuation. And, and Patrick, what do, what do you think? Do you think there's been a rush in, to grab like venture assets? I think less so than in, in say the North American market, Sarah, it's, you know, this is a less, less developed, less mature market, easy, easy data point there. I mean, the, the time that it takes to raise a series A or a series B in the U S is counted in the number of weeks here in the region. It's months, right? Uh, yeah. Amjad will, will have been on deals where unfortunately, you know, it ends up taking almost a year <laughs> to close the financing. You have two, which is insane. So I, in terms of today's discussion, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in the magnet report. I think that is the result of a lot of stuff that was pre-baked and started last year. And because of how long it takes to get deals done, you know, that, that data is showing up now as, as reported. I think it'll be interesting to see what, what the Q3 and, and H2 report looks like in that, in that regard. And I, but I, I agree with everything Amjad said, but would just differentiate between what's, what's happening here in the region, amount of liquidity, deals getting done, valuations being agreed, and, and what's happening in, in a developed market like the US when you, when you take the comps of the public markets for things like SaaS and, and e-commerce. Yeah, and, and do you think, um, so just go back to Amjad, do you think that in specific, and did the crisis, um, how did that affect valuations in specific? So do you think investors are demanding better terms and are founders accepting lesser valuation or lesser terms because of the pandemic, uh, they want to kind of close their rounds um, or close a bridge round, for example. Do you see that happening? So I think the, f the issue we have in the region is a liquidity issue. Um, so I, I, I don't want us to get too caught up in these reports and the numbers because frankly, there's still a drop in the bucket of what we really need. <laughs> so we still need a lot. We, we need two things. We need a lot more money to come in. And more importantly is we need a lot more players because what makes a market efficient is, yeah. is a lot of players. And I think the fundamental problem that a lot of startups have in the region is that whenever you're, you're pitching and you're trying to raise around, the reality is you don't have an efficient market to price. So, so valuations are still not super high in our part of the world. And, and it has a lot to do with this mechanism of pricing, right? So, so that's still an issue. I think, what I'm seeing is that there's more liquidity for smaller deals at the initial stages because a lot of people are getting excited and a lot of people are entering the market, but we still have a significant issue on the growth capital side. So when you're raising uh, B, C, you know, later rounds, it's interesting because the risk is less, the companies are more mature, they've already proven themselves, 
but frankly, there are not a lot of players that are willing to put those check sizes to work. So what, what you end up happening are, are valuations sort of start declining, yeah. interestingly enough, as you scale, which, which is sort of counter uh, to what should be happening. Yeah. Um, I, I think the earlier stages are getting a little pricey just because there's this like uh, more, more sort of interest in, in this space. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are willing to do small checks. Uh, but, but as you scale, it's, it's still an issue in the region. We need a lot more capital, a lot more players. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. And, and Patrick, just as a, as a lawyer and as a founder yourself, do you see that founders are more, um, likely to accept like lesser terms, for example, if they're unable to raise, uh, if they're unable to raise a round or close their rounds? Yeah. I mean, we're, we are seeing down rounds right now. We are yeah. seeing down rounds for businesses that are having a great crisis, you know, that in Q2, they had their best quarter ever. But that speaks to, to Amjad's point that as companies mature and they need to raise 10, 20, $50 million, it can be extremely difficult, at least in the region, to, to do that, even if they've proven that they, they have a winning formula and they can, they can yeah. win and accelerate in the downtimes. But certainly for the for the earlier stage, seed stage, people looking for you know a half million dollar check, there's plenty of people out there that that are willing to write it. And this, again, the whole COVID thing has been a massive wake up call and a call to attention for people, regardless of, of what industry you're in. That you know this this tech thing is not a fad. If every business that will be yeah. alive in 12 months has to be at least tech enabled. So you have to develop your strategy towards that. Maybe it's an M&A strategy. Maybe it's an investment strategy. Maybe it's a build-it-yourself strategy. But everyone is now alive to that. So yeah. by virtue of that, there are angels and, and seed groups that are, are kind of happy to, to plump a small ticket down for what they think is a great idea with, with a decent group of founders. But the more mature companies are the ones that are suffering right now. Yeah, so we did see like... A new sources of capital coming in in different forms, in different forms of corporates, in forms of angels and uh, governments, for example. So do you think that drove valuations up? Is that one of the, 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 like the fresh capital that came into the market is one of the reasons that drove the valuations up? I think it's it, that a lot of those things have yet to fully work their way through the venture capital piping of the region, right? It takes a while for a government or a government-backed fund of funds to do the due diligence, then write the check, then hand it over to the VC, then for the VC to deploy. It's not, we don't, in, in the region, we don't work at, at the speed of, of more developed markets who, are, who have been you know, doing venture capital for decades. So yeah. I think that that is starting to, to come to the fore, but it, it, you know, by and large, it was not there on say March 1st or, or April 1st. And I think it, you know, is, is coming, but, that cash hasn't been freely available to actually invest. So as always, there's a big distinction here between what's announced and kind of what what's reality at that point in time is. Yeah, so we'll wait Sarah, to see what, yeah. Uh, sorry, just to, to build on the point about corporates coming into the market, I think it's important for founders to know that corporates price things very differently than investors. Mm. So, so they don't really drive prices up, they drive them down. <laughs> corporates are very conservative, they, they try to do a lot of in-kind because the way they see it is that I'm, I'm giving you a check, but I'm also giving you business. So they want special pricing. 
So I think they don't have a positive effect on valuation. They have a positive effect in having the market be more liquid, which is great. I, I love for, for corporates to come in, but they are very conservative on pricing. I think when it comes to governments, we need more flexibility. I think, I think Patrick says it well, the speed has to be much faster. There has to be less rules. I, I think we have a, a, an, an inclination in the region to over structure everything. Yeah. So they should let the market be the market. It should be a free market. It should be a capitalist market. They should pump money into VCs and let the VCs do their job. I think the more parameters you put as a government organization, the less efficient it's going to be to deploy that yeah. capital. So, so I would rather that they deploy and let good things happen. That should be our model is let the market work itself out uh, and it will, but we need more liquidity. And, and frankly, I'm a big fan of governments trying to build more VCs because yeah. To, doing it directly doesn't make any sense. You could support two industries at the same time by supporting a financial services industry, by pumping money into VCs and private equity shops and more of them. So you should, you should do it across the board and allow them to invest in companies. That is a great model. And, and it's proven all over the world that it works really well. Yeah. And, and just, to, just to follow on from that, it's a really good point. I think governments sometimes have a, have a, hes have a uh, have an inclination not to realize that by supporting the traditional banks, the big banks and saying we're pumping liquidity into the banks, that by some miracle for the first time ever, banks will start lending to loss-making tech companies. It's never <laughs> happened once and I don't see it happening anytime soon, certainly not for the next decade. So by the same token that they're saying, look, we're supporting our, our major financial institutions to support the economy, they can also do what Amjad just said and say, okay, well, for this other sector of the economy, that is growing fast, supporting high paying tech jobs. Let's also yeah. give them the same kind of treatment and give it to the people that actually know how to give these startups money because the banks certainly do not. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I agree um, about that. Do you see that happening across? Do you see like, uh, is this something you're seeing across different industries or just, um, or, or is it per industry? Like things, things are a bit different. Um, how, how are you seeing it like across? The, the different industries within tech, I mean. On, on, which, on which point? On so is like, the, I mean, the valuations and the, and the funding, like, mm. is that something happening across different industries or is it happening uh, to specific industries? I'm trying to have you to take it or oh, I, can, sure. I, can, yeah. I can answer. Go ahead, Patrick, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, I mean, ob obviously, Patrick. you know, there's, going back to the initial point, I mean, you know, the, the, the multiple for something like Zoom is, is just continues, it continues to climb. Whereas if you're looking at, um, uh, you know, something that's been hugely affected, like an online travel aggregator, it's, it's in the basement. So you, know, you can have companies playing in e-commerce together but you know, an online travel aggregator versus a, a grocery delivery platform will, will exactly. have had a very, very different Q2, even yeah. though you could characterize them both as e-commerce players. Um, I think FinTech broadly is, is a big winner, right? Everything, you know, just think of contactless payments and how that has essentially been legislated now in, in a lot of ways. We're seeing, we're seeing lots of uh, winners on that side. Um, uh, SaaS products, obviously uh, doing very well. Um, but you know, there, I think there's the, there's the super clear winners that 
COVID has been a, a huge positive for in terms of in terms of their business model. Then you've got the bucket of the bucket of companies that Amjad referred to earlier, which are having a very strong crisis, but they're they're being let down by the liquidity gap. And then you've got the people that, by no fault of their own, it's it's just a terrible time because their whole business model has evaporated overnight. And unfortunately, a lot of those people were right on the cusp of doing their next fundraise, and they've they've had to figure out a way to cut massively in order to survive. So, you know it. It depends on a range of factors. There's people having very different experiences, even within the same sector. And and um, if these people raised at lower valuations to survive, so let's say they took their down rounds, how do you think that affects them at later rounds? So if somebody did raise at a lower valuation because they suffered during the pandemic, and or they raised at a higher valuation because there was a because they boomed, what what can what can you tell us about how what to expect at the later rounds? Uh, is that for me? Yeah, that's the VC. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sarah, honestly, I, I, I've had these discussions like literally the first week of the crisis. Uh, and actually, I, I sent an email out to a lot of the companies even before March saying, guys, heads up, start, start preserving cash. And there seems to be something uh, bad going on. And I, honestly, it's an irrelevant discussion. It's about survival. So everyone will understand what you did during this crisis. This hit everyone. So I don't think it's very difficult to explain that you had a down round during COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but, but there are people who are doing down rounds because they deserve to do a down round um, because they raised a very high you know, seed or, or let's say A, and when they come to B, where you trade less on potential and more on reality, they're having issues. So one thing I think founders need to be very careful of is, is this euphoria, euphoria around raising a very large valuation, because that might not last forever. And you know as well as I do that you trade a lot on potential in the early stages. It's not reality, it's potential. Yeah. And that's why you have such varied valuation in the beginning, right? One guy gives you 100, one guy gives you 50 valuation. Uh, but the later stages, that, that, that sort of range starts condensing because it's about reality. You have yeah. performance, people can see it. So what ends up happening, unfortunately, is sometimes they struggle with their cap table to even have a down round and it ends up killing the company. I mean, I've, I've seen it where you have a struggle even raising because your cap table doesn't agree. And, and if you have a messy cap table, it gets even worse, right? So it's a, it's a significant issue. And I think people need to be careful of that, especially in an environment like ours, where you have a lot of liquidity at the lower stages and practically no liquidity once you start scaling. So I, I think that, um, so, so what do you think, because we said that a lot of the companies that did really well, are, going, are probably raising at higher valuations now just because of the boom of their specific, like let's say a marketplace that was doing groceries, for example. Do you think they will face this issue at a later stage where they might, might have raised at a higher valuation than, and they would want to raise uh, at an even higher one later, but then would have to suffer from a down round? Do you think that's something that could be happening to these companies? Well, look, I think two things. I think one is, um, my data points don't, don't uh, show that people are raising at very high multiples. I think the multiples are still conservative. And, okay. 
And it's because of our region. Again, it goes back to the liquidity issue and how many real players are actually in the market today. And, and I'm talking about later rounds, people who are raising, who are doing well, who are raising B, C. Yeah. Frankly, the valuation discussions are still, I would say, conservative um, compared to other markets. But, but yes, I think what you're saying is right as well, which is, let's say someone does end up raising at a crazy valuation today, but it doesn't actually play out to be that aggressive after COVID subsides, yeah. then they're gonna have a big problem. And, and actually it's a bigger problem because if you're raising a big round, the people around the table are, are much larger investors who have yeah. more control. So, so you could run into, and, and don't forget, I think you know as well as I do that a lot of the paperwork has anti-dilution. Yeah. So guess who takes the hit? <laughs> you know, you as the founder, right? And, and, yeah. and the people who came the earlier. So, so it's a very dangerous phenomenon, right? And I've seen some very harsh anti-dilution clauses and rightly so. I mean, if you're gonna want a high valuation, you're gonna have to live with some of these tough terms and you better deliver, right? Yeah. So, so what I urge in founders to do is take a pragmatic view about building the company. I think we get too caught up in rounds and the valuation at that stage, but no one is looking at the long term. Let's build a real company with a real foundation that makes sense. Yeah. And, 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 and let's have the right investors around the table. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, there's a situation today where unfortunately the founder brought in an unsophisticated early stage party with a very uh, tough shareholder agreement and they're unable to raise the next round because that party's saying, wait a minute, you sold me at 10 million. Now you want to sell at five. I mean, how does that work? No way. Right. And, yeah. They didn't have anti-dilution. So now there's a big fight of what to do. But the yeah. company needs the capital. So and I'm, I'm sure that's happening across different uh, companies as well. Yes, yes. Pat Patrick, how are you seeing the terms changing in terms of, um, in terms of uh, investment terms? How do you see those changing in the past six months, let's say? Or Yeah. Um, I'd maybe take the last three months in particular. So a few thoughts. I mean, <laughs> again, trailing off what, what Amja just said, there's a lot of founders out there getting reacquainted, perhaps for the first time in detail with the provisions of their shareholders agreement yeah. <laughs> and learning around <laughs> things true. like anti-dilution, pay-to-play, ratchets. Um, and they're going to be learning a lot more about them, I think, as, as, the, months, <laughs> as the months proceed. We're seeing stuff like which we wouldn't have been seeing in Q1 or Q4 last year, um, uh, you know, discount rates in notes going from 20 to 25% investors who would have done a $1 million ticket doing a $500,000 ticket and saying, guys, look, I'll invest if you show me that your, your OPEX has come down by 25% this quarter. So you can do the same thing, but with less money. I think there's lots of those conversations happening, which wouldn't have happened before. It's like, sorry, founder X, have you taken a 20%, 30% salary pay cut? Why yeah. not? That's going to be an obligation of me giving you cash. You, you think you need this, but if you just spend less, you don't need as much. So let's, let's make something work. Also yeah. seeing, um, and, and again, it, it is a, it's a super important point that Anjad made. Founders often, you know, they've only known good times because we haven't had a real correction right? Yeah. Since 2009, 2010. So this is a, this is a very rude awakening for a lot of them, but it, it, the, the identity of your investors really matters. And a lot of time you only realize that once, once the tide has gone out, 
and you have situations like this arising. And again, if you don't do your shareholders agreement properly or you have the wrong investor who takes kind of a zero sum approach to these discussions and has not been involved in this space before is kind of first time at the table as being a shareholder in a, in a venture backed startup and they react in the wrong way, they can torpedo your company. And yeah. it's just, it's an absolute crying shame. But in some cases, if you haven't paid attention to the details, it's unavoidable. So um, we're, we're seeing lots of people having some sleepless nights because they didn't take that due, due care and attention. Some other things on the positive side, I think you, you have groups of investors who are more forward-looking, who are coming together, coming together and deciding to do you know, what we call inside rounds. So the company needs more capital. We're not going to go out to new investors. We're just going to come up with the cash amongst ourselves. And maybe for the rest of the year or for a six-month period, we'll, we'll maintain the last valuation. That might yeah. be artificial. That could, that could well be artificial in the current market, but they will set the terms at that. But they'll give them just enough maybe to see them through to January in the hope that you know, the market is, is going to rebound, other investors become less scared, start deploying. Um, so I think, I think that's interesting. And then a last thought is that we're now finally starting to see venture debt players come into the market. And this is something that can solve this issue in so many ways because valuation is irrelevant, yeah. right? You're just looking at how well the company is doing. Again, venture debt for people who aren't aware, basically a loan which looks at your revenues. So it's say a revenue-based loan. Um, the VC lender gives you $5 million based on your financials and you pay them back based on a percentage of your revenue each month or each quarter. So obviously the better that you are doing the more quickly you're going to pay them back. They don't get board seats. There's no shareholders agreement for them to sign. They might get some warrants, but this is some, this is a huge gap in the market that needs to be filled. And I actually think that this, that COVID will be the instigator um, to, to lead to that gap being filled. Yeah. So investors are looking for more creative ways also to come into companies that are not straightforward equity or straightforward like traditional investments. Um, and founders who are doing really well don't want to get hammered with a, with a down round. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And a lot of companies also want to fund their businesses um, not only using equity because sometimes that, that's very expensive. That turns out to be very expensive every time you need to fund something, you're using your equity to do so. So I think that um, not only through venture debt, but there are always ways or creative ways to come into companies that don't necessarily are in like traditional equity investments. Um, Sarah, the, the only thing I, I want to add is I, I, would, I would urge uh, founders um, to, to be careful with the warrants and to yeah. ensure they understand how the warrant is priced and what it eventually means for dilution because I've seen a couple of these term sheets and to be honest, they're egregious. I mean, the warrant ends up, ends up being very, very expensive. So I think the, the danger in venture debt is to understand exactly what you're paying and, yeah. and what it's gonna mean as you, as you grow out of the company. Yeah. Exactly. And actually a very, also, also applicable to people who have raised on convertibles right yes, now absolutely. right so people who have run out of money and raised on a convertible not realizing you know everyone just assumes they'll raise at their valuation cap 
right? So if you, if you raised $2 million on a $10 million cap with a 20% discount, you're out of money and now your best offer is $4 million pre-money valuation. Yeah. You're, you're done, right? You're probably going to walk away from the business. Do you see um, people raising more convertibles or equity rounds, uh, let's say in the past, in the like most recent months? Are you seeing more convertibles? There's, a, there's definitely, there's definitely uh, I mean, for earlier, you know, your seed stage guys, that's what they should be doing. So certainly that's happening. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of bridging happening right now. You know, yeah. what cash do you need to get through the next six months? From because it's quicker and easier. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I just wanted to kind of just touch on the ge geography because we've been seeing a lot of pipeline from both Saudi and from Egypt. Um, I just wanted to see how have you seen these markets evolve? We've seen funding, a lot of funding and a lot of deals being closed um, in, in Egypt and in Saudi. Have, um, Amjad, do you want to take this one? Yes, I, I think Egypt has always been there and I think it, it's, yes, you're right, it's, it's accelerating. But I think the interesting one for me is Saudi. Um, yeah. You know, it was sort of like the sleeping giant uh, three, four years ago. Yeah. But, but it played out very well. And I, I think what's happening in Saudi is, is a direct function of the liquidity within the market. What, what you're finding is that there seems to be this confidence locally to be able to raise seed rounds and start ventures, which I think is really healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, I hope a lot of them succeed, but you're going to have a lot of failures, but that's fine. I think they're trying to now build a, an entrepreneurial sort of economy. Yeah. Which, which I like. And, and I think what makes Saudi unique is the liquidity. I think they're, they're, it's such a big country with so many pools of capital that their liquidity is very interesting. I mean, we're seeing seed rounds there, and I'd love to see this analysis on Saudi specifically, but seed rounds there tend to be a lot bigger than seed rounds anywhere else, even the UAE. Um, so I, agree. I think ra raising a few million dollars in Saudi seems to be very easy, which, which I think is great. I think it, it's yeah. great. Now, now, I think the quality issue needs to play out a little bit more, but that's fine. That's the nature of, of how markets develop. But I, I'm really enjoying watching the liquidity there. I think, I think it, it's, it's great. It's improved dramatically. And you're seeing the results of that. Yeah. And, um, and Patrick, how are you seeing um, both markets evolve? It's quite similar to, to Amjad. The, the key, key differentiators for Saudi versus Egypt um, are, are the deep wells of liquidity. Obviously, a lot of that coming from the government or the fund of funds, like the SVCs of the world, um, JADAs through, through PIF. Um, but then also, um, uh, I would say the, um, what was my second point? The, oh, and also the, the legal and regulatory framework. So the government, I mean, you've seen the activity, all of the announcements um, that they're making to kind of unwind some of these laws that were put in place pre-internet era, which were you know, deeply dysfunctional from the perspective of founders who are, you know, classic example would be an e-commerce business. You're trying to bring goods in, into Saudi. So technically you need their trading license. And before you can get that, you have to have 20 million reals or whatever it is on account. Yeah. Now, right, starting a year ago, Dr. Mazin and, and other members of the Ministry of Investment team said, guys, like this, this doesn't make sense. We can't, you know, founders of tech companies, this does not compute. They can't run their businesses with all this stuff. So they've been taking a very active approach 
to look at the laws currently in place from the standpoint of tech company founders and saying, what do we have to do here to make everyone's lives easier, to drive liquidity in the market, to make these companies more investable. So I think it's been a much more activist approach, not only from a liquidity perspective, but also from a legal and regulatory perspective. Not so much the case in the example of Egypt, but just by the sheer mass of demographics, 100 million plus people, you know, incredible entrepreneurial energy, very young population. Um, there, there are and have been fantastic businesses being built there. And I think um, a lot of it just comes from from sheer need, right? Necessity. Yeah. It's you know, unemployment rates are are massive, and people are are digital natives. Uh, English widely spoken amongst the youth, and these guys can come together because and and just start companies. It's a super low cost base, and they're doing it in spite of of government assistance or in spite of um, uh, pockets of capital that the government is supplying. But they're they're doing a great job. Yeah. And I think as unemployment also increases um, in, in countries with such large populations, people will start being more creative about freelance, like the freelance model and trying to find work or trying to build their own companies to kind of, and that's where this creativity pops up everywhere. So I think that's what we're also seeing. I think we have a few questions from the, on the chat. So I, um, just because we're running a bit out of time. Um, so, I'll, so there's one question for Amjad. Um, somebody has ran into your step and he wants to, he's saying the business has boomed over the past three months. We have signed deals with Delivery Hero, Kareem and many other players. Our challenge is raising capital to grow our operations. How do we do that? I mean, look, I think if you've had a great story in the last three months, it, I think you have to present not just the story, but the fact that is it sustainable um, so having a good story for three months is not really what I think sophisticated investors are looking at what they're saying is has there been a fundamental change in the business model that's going to contain that could continue for the foreseeable future and I think if you can prove that then then obviously you can raise money I think depending on which market you're in you should go after the, the investors in that market because they will understand the dynamic probably much more than than others today. Um, obviously, this is a very singular case, so I'd have to know more to, to advise on how to go about fundraising. But I think it is the time to sort of approach uh, the people you have approached in the past, maybe who said no, uh, present the story, because I've seen that work. Yeah. Uh, but again, you have to prove that there was a fundamental shift in your business model. And I think one thing we didn't really talk about, which I think is really important, is I think, forget about COVID for a second, there was a dynamic in the market for about a year that was already changing the landscape for technology startups, which are people were no longer willing to pay for just growth. So I think if COVID has helped you become more uh, economical in terms of your business model, that's what you should be talking about. It's not just about growth. It's about the economics of the business. Does it make sense? And, and a lot of businesses right now have benefit, yeah. exactly. I mean, if your unit economics today are not, are not what they should be, you're not gonna raise capital, even during COVID. No one cares about the fact that you grew by 100%. That's not enough. Yeah. The, the point here is, have your unit economics changed for whatever reason? And I think the bright spot in, 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 uh, in e-commerce, for example, is that you do see a sustainability 
of the economics they've changed you know yeah. so so that's made them a lot more attractive yeah yeah we investors are just looking for sustainable businesses while before um five years yes. ago gro growth was one of the most important factors like investors would look at that but now that really did change even we, we see it on a daily basis yeah um, there's another question. Uh, are there particular gaps of availability at certain stages? Yeah, I think we mentioned one, right? Which is, which is, I think, I think, I think the 10 million mark seems to be, uh, seems to be that sort of ceiling. Um, yeah. Where, where, uh, I mean, let's, let's just think about the players we have in the region. The largest VCs in the region today, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you guys also know the market. I haven't seen one of them write more than a $5 million check, Yeah. right? Which means if you work backwards, the minute you hit a 10 million check, you, you, need, a, you, have, you need four or five players to get together to do that check, minimum. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen more, I've seen 10. So, so unfortunately what happens at 10 million is, you know, even if you do raise it, you're not raising it with one or two parties, you're raising it with like five to 10 already. Above 10 is even, more difficult yeah so so we have a growth capital issue in the region i don't see us having a big seed issue in the region and and that unfortunately is is very challenging to create scalable businesses because just when they prove themselves and just when it's working you don't have that fuel that takes them to that next level mm -hmm. and unfortunately what ends up happening and i'm sure patrick has seen a lot of this it, it, you go into this inefficient fundraising cycle where you're raising five and then you're raising another five and then two years later you're raising another. I mean, it's very inefficient, which, which doesn't allow you to develop the business the way it should develop long-term. I mean, I, I, I laugh with my friends here in the US and I go, by the time Amina company hits series B, they've probably been around for like six, seven years. Yeah. And, and, and actually, they're much later yeah. stage than yeah. a Series B in the U.S., in the US yeah. right? I mean, Series B in the U.S. is like after a year or two years, and it's crazy, right? So, so I, I think, so, so, so what I'm trying to say is, is a positive thing, which is hats off to companies that reach the Series B, because frankly, it means that they're solid, and they, they've gotten there through a lot of hard work, and they scaled effectively, and their unit economics work. Yeah. But unfortunately, at that stage, they need the big check. And we're struggling to get there. I think, I think we need some big pools of capital to step in and say, you know, here's the capital. I mean, I think if you look at the history of Kareem and Souk, and, you know, they only got the capital from outside yeah. to fuel that growth. And, yeah. and a, lot of, a lot of the people locally missed out on these investments, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I was, I was gonna. I was gonna. I was gonna make that point just there. That you know, I think it is important for founders to realize if if they're having good success at an early stage, that in order to counteract this issue, you need to start developing relationships with VCs who are not in the region, and Absolutely. you don't have to. You don't have to go too far, right? You look at some of the companies that Amjad just mentioned, and then you look at some of the you know U.S. or U.K. VCs, Singaporean VCs. Chinese Korean VCs who are putting in tickets. So, you know, like a, like a Lumia Capital or an Index Ventures, there are lots of people who see those, what they would deem as low valuations as compared with the, with the US context and saying, look, these companies are on sale over here. 
they've yeah. got a five or they've got a five or six year track record. We're used to seeing a two year track record. These founders are quite mature. The competitive landscape is super thin because they've been at it so long. They've built all these moats around the business. So just because you you're having a lot of difficulty raising ten million dollars, or you're a year before your Series B and you're already dreading those conversations, um, that is one way to alleviate that. Um, is starting to develop those relationships with pools of capital that are on the other side of the planet, but targeting those VCs that have a specific emer emerging market focus as part of their business plan. And just yeah, and, and just 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 to build on that last point, I think a lot of founders of Fortune, I try to advise, advise them on this, is you should understand the mathematics behind raising money. You know, I've, I've had to raise money as a venture capital uh, investor. And what I can tell you is the hit rate is about 1%, which means you have to talk to 100 people to get one. I think sometimes founders get discouraged by talking to 10. That's not enough. Yeah. You, know, you gotta talk to two, 300 investors. And frankly, if you could make them global, that's probably better. Do you see global investors int uh, more interested in the region uh, past few years or past before the pandemic? Honestly, no. Uh, I think, I think to, to, to attract foreign investors, again, the math needs to work. And what that means is you have to be a business that can scale regionally. I, I don't think if you're a locally scaled business, it's going to work because yeah. they want to see valuations in the few hundred million to a billion to, to make it make sense for them, right? So, mm -hmm. so I think unless you're a play like a Kareem, like a Souk, you know, someone who can go pan-regional, then frankly, raising external capital from outside the region is challenging. Yeah. Um, which, which, which brings back another much more complicated point, which is, we need the region to open up. We need, we need countries to become much more flexible with cross-border yeah. and, and, and to realize that, you know, it's okay for companies to be built in Dubai because they're going to create jobs in Egypt. They're going to create jobs in Jordan. They're going to create jobs in Saudi and vice versa, right? And, and I think we're still sort of very closed. We're not the European Union, right? We're not the U.S. where jumping from New York to, to Florida is literally turning on a switch. Yeah. Uh, with us, it's a much more challenging scale model. So, uh, yeah, you need, you need scale to, to attract foreign capital. Yeah. There's one more question, um, two more questions. So, is, uh, is government-backed capital distorting valuations? Uh, for example, de development, development fund, funds pushing specific geographies, or is that a non-factor as gap in capital is so large anyway? Might depend on might depend on the company and and the the month in question when the numbers are being taken. <laughs> I mean the the Saudi effort the Saudi effort I think really from a regional perspective really kind of tops it out when you're looking at that. But again, I I don't I I don't think we've really started to see the full weight of that. I think it's still an open question. So again, that distinction between what is announced that is going to be that is going to start flowing into the market and what has actually been to deploy, deployed into bank accounts of startups. There's, yeah. Still, yeah. there's still quite a divide there. Yeah, I mean, look, the, uh, VC funding in the region is still what? 1%, 2% of GDP? It's nothing. I mean, we yeah. need multiples of what's happening today to, to really have an efficient market. Um, 
So I'm, I'm a big fan of governments coming in and pumping money into the system. And I think they should do more because what happens naturally is private players will follow. So we need more. We need a lot more. Uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the magnet reports are, are great, but those numbers don't make me happy. I mean, we need to see so much more than that. Okay. One more question. What is your best advice for a deep tech company that's built and validated its tech over two years and now raising their seed round from the region? I think we kind of answered that. What do you mean by deep tech? (laughs) So so maybe, maybe there's a point here is if you're building a company, when you say deep tech, that's an innovation, that's a global innovation. Yeah, I think what they mean is that they've, they don't have, like, they've been just focusing on the tech for so long and for two years, the tech has right. developed into, like, a, like, like, they've developed a product and now they're re- raising their seed round. What's the advice uh, yeah, to do so? The, the, the advice is bootstrap and get some customers because yeah. in, in the region, raising capital on tech alone is not, is not feasible. Um, it's very challenging. Uh, unless you're a founder that already has a track record of building and selling a company, it's very challenging. So, yeah. so try to find a way to get customers, uh, get some adoption of your tech, uh, and then go raise. Um, yeah, I think I think that's all the questions for today. I'll just add on to that. Uh, oh, there's one more. Referring to Amjad's point that only 1% of GDP is from VC, then what can either as entrepreneurs, investors, private companies can do to increase this number or attract more investment into the region? I honestly think it's, it's a matter of getting the word out about the good stories that are happening. We're, we're not good at that. Um, and we need to do that not only locally, but globally. Yeah. And I think we need more transparency. I think people need to come out, talk about their numbers, uh, be upfront about what's happening. Um, I think VCs can do a great job of uh, showing investors all over the world about returns and what's been happening. And I think that needs to happen more. Um, I think governments can do a big job here. I think, I think we need PR, we need government PR. Um, and yeah. then UAE, UAE is very good at this, but I think they can even do more um, of, of doing roadshows, uh, you know, showing uh, that they're uh, entrepreneurs and companies are exactly like the ones sitting all over the world. They're doing great things. Um, so I think it's a story issue. We, we need to tell the story more and more and more. And we need to get yeah. it out there. And, and everyone needs to pitch in, whether it's the financial sector, whether it's the private sector, corporates, whether it's, it's government, and frankly, entrepreneurs, you know, to tell your story. I, I agree with that. And I think there's actually a bit of a unique moment right now we, we talk a lot about the government funds and everything, but if you look at regional family offices who historically have been very conservative in the way that they deploy their cash, and when in previous years they've received presentations in relation to a tech company looking for money, you know, it's a knee-jerk reaction to saying, this is, this is super high risk, I, I don't understand how this works. You know, go ask those people now how their commercial real estate portfolio is doing something that they perceived as zero risk, you know, along, along the lines of U.S. Treasury bonds. There is a seismic, seismic shift happening in the way that the world is doing business and, and how we deal with each other. And it's also happening at the same time that the reins of control in a lot of these family offices is being passed from one generation to the next. And I think, again, 
this is going to be accelerating that because we're entering a new environment that the old guard just doesn't really understand. And so they're going to be, I think, more inclined to, to get those reins into the hands of the younger generation who are more in tune with what's happening in the tech space. So I agree, it, it is a story. We need a way better narrative. We need, we need resources pushed behind that narrative. Um, but I think there's a lot of people out there who have those pools of capital who will connect on this point because it's not only about the message, it's the timing of the message. And the timing of the message for a lot of these people might, might be quite ideal. And I yeah, think there, there's one question just that um, kind sure. of adds to that. Some founders investor dynamics is like dancing with the wolves. However, it should be a win-win situation. What's the best advice to make this dynamic work at its best? I mean, I, I think it goes back to what Patrick and I alluded to already, which is yeah. pick the right investors and, and also advisors, right? I think, I think if, if you have good mentors and, and people who can walk you through the process, you should utilize them effectively. Yeah. Um, and frankly, if you feel like you're dancing with wolves, maybe it's time to go hang out with sheep. So, <laughs> you know, uh, honestly, I mean, I, I, have, I have investors come to me and they say, I just don't trust this person. I say, then don't take their money. I mean, I, yeah. I know you're, you really need the money, but it could be even more dangerous for your company to, to take like this money. Like a marriage. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so uh, but, but I think there's a, a point I want to add to what Patrick just said. Uh, my issue, I think, with, with our structure of investors is it's very dangerous for the industry to focus on high net wealth and family groups because you know whenever you have on what I, those are those are not institutional investors those are investors that make decisions based on very different factors than institutional investors what we need is that institutional investor sector in the region to be built up in a significant way and that takes government involvement so you know the pension funds the insurance companies the banks vc funds pe funds all of those guys have to have institutional capital because what that means is it's steady, it's logical, it's smart, you know, and, and, it's, and it's bigger pools of capital. The, the issue with us is, and, and by the way, this is true for the stock market as well, when 85% of your investors are individuals and, and family offices, you have this volatility. One year they're liquid, the other year they're not liquid. This year they feel like investing. Next year they don't feel like investing. Yeah. Inst institutional capital has to invest. That's their job. It's, it's steady. So it's a better way for us to build a more sustainable ecosystem. Yeah. And you've got, and you've got a timer on you, right? Absolutely. As a VC, right? So you've, you've, you brought the cash in. It's not like you need the cash and you've got seven, <laughs> eight years to deploy it. hundred so, percent. You know, this is 100%. just what we're going through right now might yeah. be the best buying opportunity ever. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, I hope people invest in VCs as well at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> I that, hope so. That's what should be happening. Yeah. Okay, one, the last question I'm going to ask is someone said, I have noticed that angel groups in Dubai have backed out on pre-revenue stage businesses. Why do you think this is happening? Uh, Patrick, you want to? <laughs> yeah, I was... <laughs> I mean, Amjad kind of answered it a, a bit with the previous question. I mean, let, let's look at that through the lens of, of the current, current environment. I think you, because there are so many opportunities to fund businesses out there, because there are so many early stage businesses out there to fund who have, who have a product, who have generated some revenue, who have customers, I think 
people want to put their their focus their focus there. Um, I, I really do think that kind of pure idea stage. I'm gonna quit my job if you give me some cash. I really do think those are probably you know best left to number one yourself. So I would never, as as with my angel investor hat on, I would never invest in anyone that hasn't put some of their own cash in to get the business out of the gate. Right then, probably you're looking at friends and family, and then if you you can build a product, at least the opening iterations of one. If you have customer base, you can show you're generating revenue. Then maybe those those angel groups are are uh, have a more open ear for you. Amjad. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I think I think angel groups have have gone through a cycle themselves, right? I think a lot of them made a lot of bets. And unfortunately, maybe a lot of them didn't work out. So they're learning as well through this process. You know, again, the, the industry is very nascent. I think we, we should really add that, whether it's VC or angel groups, it's a nascent industry. And I think what, what I personally saw was angel groups rushed into the market, people putting in $10,000, $20,000 or whatever it is, and they thought it was exciting and no money came back. And I think a lot of them thought this was going to be, you know, like the next Uber, like, put 20,000 and then make 2 million and that just didn't happen. So yeah. uh, I, I think the reality of angel investing is it's very, very risky. And, and I think as they went through those cycles, I think the angel investors said, well, wait a minute. No, I, I don't want to just invest in ideas anymore. I want to see something a little bit more developed. Um, so I think you're seeing a natural cycle play out. And, and again, look, the reality of our region is that, is that, raising money on a, on a business plan is very difficult. Um, and that's not, that's not just true for tech, it's true for any industry. So, so the, you know, at that stage, you have to have your own capital, you have to have friends and family, that's your best bet. It's, it's not really outside investors. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think there's a lot more questions coming in, but I think we're out of time, um, unfortunately. I might uh, just send you an email with the questions and if you would like to uh, sure. answer them, because there are some for you and some for Patrick as well. Um, so yeah, this was great. Like, I really enjoyed the discussion. I hope you did too. Um, so thank you for joining. And uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for hosting. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Amjad. Good. Good seeing you. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Guys, take care.